We're working our way through Matthew's Gospel, and come this morning to the 8th chapter, beginning at verse 18, we will read through verse 27. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. Let us briefly pray before reading this portion of God's Word. Our Father, we pray that the wind of the Spirit, the blessed breath of the Lord Almighty, will blow in and through this inspired Word into our hearts, that you would illumine the page of this verbally inspired, inerrant Word of God, that we may see Jesus Christ on this page, and that hearts would be opened in this in this age in which we are so focused upon those things that are fading and fleeting, may our minds and hearts' attention be drawn to Christ so that all of those things will be put in their proper place and perspective. And as we, your worshiping people, come through the blood of Christ into your presence, even now as the word is read and preached, may our hearts be riveted and our attention riveted upon this sermon because Christ himself ultimately is the speaker, no man. And we also pray that those in our midst today who are lost and undone and estranged from a Savior may see their need of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit be drawn to put faith in the one who loved sinners like us and gave himself for us on a cross, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. A very, very simple text. This is the Word of God. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Now, this is an excellent text for Palm Sunday, I hope you see. No, it is not that passage that comes later in Matthew in which Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but it is nonetheless an excellent text for Palm Sunday. I hope you see the connection as Jesus moves later on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem and the crowds, the crowds go wild as he comes in and they, they praise him and they shout their hosannas. That very same crowd soon thereafter Christ, crucify him, crucify him. They didn't understand who he was, and they didn't understand the call to discipleship. And this text that we have just read, it's all about who Jesus is, and it's about the call in our lives to be Jesus' disciples. 
to see this, this person that is so strangely and effectually attractive that we cannot resist coming to him. Now let's begin by coming to this text, and the first thing that I want us to see is that two men declare that they will follow Jesus. Two men declare that they will follow Jesus. A certain scribe first comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Teacher, he says, he seemed sincere, he will follow the Lord Jesus wherever he goes. Jesus, however, knows the man's heart. And he responds to him in verse 20, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The scribe was willing to make a short-term commitment. He was willing to follow Jesus for a while. Being Jesus' disciple, he must have thought, would ensure all kinds of security. Look at the miracles that he's been performing, as we've seen already in chapter 8. And he also must have had this Jewish concept of the Messiah, that Jesus would come and through these miracles and his, and his power, that he would politically conquer and bring in the kingdom in that fashion. But no, following Jesus, following Jesus means difficulty and privation. It means that if you follow me in this particular context, there will be no lodging. You will be exposed to the elements, that things will be hard. The church today is doing the opposite of what Jesus did. The church today is doing everything it can to fill its ranks with people, many of whom are unconverted, who are never challenged with the cost of discipleship. Yes, the, the gospel that comes to us is free grace. But when that free grace grips our hearts, following Jesus costs us everything. When you become Jesus' disciple, there will be hard choices. You will have to make life-changing, life-altering decisions. You will have to give up things that you love. You will have to love things that once you hated. There will be daily death to self. That's what it means to be Jesus' disciple. And this man, he didn't get it. This man, this scribe, didn't understand it. With all of his knowledge of the Old Testament, yet he didn't understand who Jesus was. Did you notice that Jesus uses the term son of man? Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And Christians could not avoid connecting when they read Matthew's gospel, the son of man, with that divine figure of Daniel chapter 7. Jesus using Son of Man brings with it certain nuances, but often coming with the term Son of Man means, I am that divine figure of Daniel 7. It is a way of saying that he is deity. It is a way of saying he is the second person of the Trinity. It is a way of saying that he is the incarnate Lord, that he is God who has become flesh to dwell among his people and to come and save us from our sins. And yet it is this divine figure, this second person of the Trinity, this Son of God, this Son of Man, who came into this world and he didn't even have a place to lay his head. And the disciple is not better than his master. And sometimes the Lord's call in a person's life is to make decisions such as this one. Will I follow him even if it means not having a place in which to lay my head? That was the call in this man's life. We aren't told whether he followed. 
But then another disciple came. The word disciple is used. A disciple has a broad range of meanings in the Bible. It doesn't mean that he was a committed follower of Christ, but he is a would-be disciple, if you will. And in verse 21, we read another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now that sounds like a reasonable request, don't you think? Let me go and bury my father. I mean, after all, this was the requirement for the eldest son. The eldest son was to see that the father was buried. He was to see that all of the the loose ends in his business were taken care of. That was the responsibility of eldest sons in Jesus' day. Perhaps he meant that his father had not yet died, but he's saying something like this. When I fulfill my duty at home and my father dies and I bury him, then Jesus, I'll look you up. And then I'll begin to follow you. Maybe that's what he meant. And Jesus' response shocks and bewilders. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This shocking response of Jesus, what did he mean? He means that those who are outside of the kingdom are spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. I have a different call in your life. I'm not calling you to dishonor your father. I'm calling you to honor your heavenly father. I have a duty for you to perform that is greater than the duty you are leaving behind. I'm calling you to follow me now and to let the dead bury the dead. Leave that to the unbeliever. If you're going to be my disciple, then you're alive and you do what I say and when I say it. Turn over to chapter 10. We read something very similar to this in chapter 10, verses 34 and following. When Jesus says, 1034, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, we can't set the limits of discipleship. We are not permitted to set the parameters of discipleship. Don't put the sepulcher before the Savior. Follow me, says Jesus. Let the dead bury the dead. Now, who wants to follow one who is so disruptive of life as Jesus is? Who wants to follow one who is so disruptive of social convention as Jesus is? He won't even let me go and bury my dead father. He is demanding immediately that I follow him. Who is this, anyway, that can make such demands? That's the question of the whole text. Who is this? Who is this man that he can make such demands? Now, you know, as I thought through these two would-be disciples and their questions of Jesus, and not knowing what their reply or their answer was, whether they followed Jesus or whether they didn't, the man that came to my mind was William Borden. I've been thinking about Borden for several weeks now. And it was interesting to me that I I turned to read D.A. Carson, a little something he had written on this text, and he had a sentence in which he mentioned William Borden. And I thought, well... We're both thinking along the same lines. Do you know William Borden, sometimes called Borden of Yale? William Borden came from the Borden family. He was a very wealthy man, very, very well off. This was 
mid-19th century, early 20th century. He wanted to be a missionary. He graduated from high school and said he wanted to be a missionary. And someone said to him, you're throwing your life away. And so he got his Bible, and in the back of his Bible, he wrote these words, no reserves, no reserves. After high school, he went to Yale. When he went to Yale, he had a huge impact upon the Yale student body. There was no one in a small group studying the Bible, no people gathered. When he left, there were 1,300 students studying the Bible and in prayer groups in Yale, Yale University. He heard the president give an address talking about how they needed to be focused on life and focused about where they were going and focused on purpose. And he was so disappointed because the president didn't tell them anything about upon whom their heart should be focused and where they should focus their lives. And he wanted to help the student body to know Jesus and to focus their lives there. He would often be found in the seedy parts of New Haven in which he would be ministering to the alcoholics and the down and outs and giving them something to eat and trying to bring them to Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful story, William Borden. In his diary around this time, he wrote, Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Say, young people, that would be good for you to write in your journal, wouldn't it? That would be good for you to write in your diary, wouldn't it? Or if you don't keep a journal or a diary, it would be a really good thing to store deep down in your heart, wouldn't it? William Borden's words could be your words, couldn't they? Couldn't you be a disciple like this, saying no to self and yes to Jesus every time? By the time he ended his stint at Yale, so many lives have been changed. When there was a hard case trying to get someone to come and study the Bible, he'd say, put that one down to me. He'd do his best to try and reach that person for Jesus. After graduation, as you could expect, all kinds of job offers came to Borden. His name, his wealth, he could increase his wealth, he could be used in business so very greatly. But he hadn't been called to business. Had he been called to business, he could have been Jesus' disciple there. But that's not God's call in William Borden's life. He's called to be a missionary. And so he refuses all of these job offers and he writes in the back of his Bible, no retreats, no retreats. And then he attended Princeton Seminary, Princeton Theological Seminary. Now, this was old Princeton Seminary. This was about 1905 or so. This is when B.B. Warfield was teaching there and Gerhardus Voss. This is the greatest theological seminary in the world. He attends this seminary. One of the professors looks out his window and sees him every morning and says, that's a solid, solid young man. And he's on course. He wants to be a missionary. And so as he graduates, he goes to Egypt. He's decided he wants to go to this small little group of Muslims in China in order to minister to them and take Jesus to them. He decides he needs to go to Egypt first. There he'll study Arabic. There he will study the Quran. There he will prepare so that he can go to this small little group in China and be used of the Lord, he hopes, to win them to Jesus. And while he's there in Egypt, he develops spinal meningitis and he dies. 25 years old, 25 years old. All the newspapers around the world took, took note of it. He was universally mourned. Was it a waste? Hey, he could have gone into business. Didn't go to Egypt, wouldn't have had spinal meningitis, wouldn't have died. No, no, all of this is in God's providence. And soon before he died, he wrote in the back of his Bible, under the other two comments he had made, he wrote, No regrets. No reserves. No retreats. 
No regrets. That's true discipleship. Now, you know that I am not saying to you that in order to be a true disciple of Jesus, you must be a missionary to the Muslims. Hey, if God calls you to that, you must. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying wherever God calls you, wherever he puts you, whatever resources he gives to you and to me, he is calling us to be all out his disciples. All out his disciples. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. And you look at a life like Borden's and you compare it with what we see and contrast it with these two gentlemen that we've read of in the text this morning. And you ask the question, why such discipleship? How such discipleship? And there's one answer to that question. William Borden saw who Jesus was and seeing who Jesus is, he was thoroughly captivated. His life was captive to the love of Jesus Christ and the love of Christ compelled him. Only those who see Jesus for who he is will want to be his disciples. That's the second thing you see in the text. The second thing is this. Who is this Jesus? Now, Jesus is on his way. He's leaving the crowds, taking his disciples. He's moving them into a storm, even though they don't know it. He's moving away from the crowds to minister in Decapolis. But he's also leading them into a new situation so that they may begin to learn something of who he is and learn to trust him more deeply. He leads them into the storm so that they may glimpse his glory. The difficulties into which the Lord led them was so that they would see who he was and so that their faith would grow. And that hasn't changed. The difficulties into which the Lord leads you and me as his people, the difficulties, struggles, and pain, and sacrifices to which he calls us, those things into which he leads us is for the purpose of showing himself to us. Now in 1986, there was a boat that was excavated at Gnosser, which is on the Sea of Galilee. It was dated from Roman times, and it would hold about 15 people, pretty large boat. It was a boat that was meant for fishing, And it had very, very low sides, you see, so that it would be easy to bring in a draught of fish, but it would have been defenseless against great waves. And it's undoubtedly a ship or a little boat of that nature that we find the disciples and Jesus now on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 680 feet below the Mediterranean. And sudden squalls come down from the summit of Mount Hermon with terrific force. As a matter of fact, the Greek text says, Seismos Megos. The word from which we derive our term seismology because it's the word ordinarily that means earthquake. This is a great storm. This is a powerful, powerful storm. Now, I can't keep this from you. One of my sleepless nights, I got up and I was, I've been reading little by little a number of books. Uh, They're my kind of of middle-of-the-night books, you know. You just pick them up, you get through them little by little until finally you get through them all. And I've been reading the life and letters of John A. Broadus, who is the founder of Southern Baptist Seminary. And he's writing a letter to his wife as he is in Israel, and they, he, and a traveling companion have come to the Sea of Galilee. And this is what he says, We are safe, quiet, and happy, and delighted to see a storm gathering on the Sea of Galilee. 
Presently, I look across. All the southern part of the lake is now clouded with rain already heavy at the south end. But opposite, I see the summits of the mountain range standing out very clear, indeed bright in the evening sun, which shines over the clouds upon them. And oh, look, look at Hermon. Look, look. Oh, look, friend, at Hermon. Mount Hermon. All words fail to tell how brilliant, how gloriously radiant. I gazed and gazed in a very agony of delight. And so I was thinking, so sometimes with the dying, when all around is growing dark, they turn their eyes in a new direction, and sudden bright transporting rises the vision of another world, splendid with unearthly glories, blessed, rapturous, overwhelming. I could not see the wonderful mountain now for the tears that came, but the rain increased and the tent invited, the tent they had set up. New and loud bursts of thunder, and as I look forth, the water of the lake is leaping high from something more than raindrops. On the tombstones here just before me, large hailstones are rebounding. The tent, too hastily erected, shakes and leaks, and I arrange our bed so as to protect them, then sit down near the tent door to gaze. White caps now on the lake and surf beating on the shore, Thunder very loud and abrupt, lightnings forked and many-colored. The northern part of the lake now obscured the vision of Hermon gone. As the hail subsides, there passes between me and the shore a great flock of black goats and some sheep hurrying from the fields to shelter, but too late. The shepherd calls, the shepherd dog barks loudly, urging the stragglers along. The storm rolls off and the north to northeast. Dr. R., his companion, has stayed out through it all. We rejoice much at having seen it, having got here just in time. That's a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And there on the shore, put yourself in the boat with Jesus and his disciples in the water. So in the midst of a quiet scene, the winds pick up, the waves begin to crash, the boat was being swamped with waves, the text tells us, but Jesus was asleep, and the disciples panic, and we read in verse 25, and they went and woke him saying, save us Lord, we are perishing. No wonder, they can't bail the water out fast enough. If it's a boat like that one that was discovered and unearthed by archaeologists at Gnosur, it has these these low sides to it so that it would be very, very quickly filled with water and would sink to the bottom with all of them in it. They can't get back to shore. They can't row back. They can't sail back. They can't walk back. They can't get back. They could do nothing. And they're put in that position in which we often find ourselves also. And it is a hard, hard place to be, but it is a good place to be. They are put in a position in which they find themselves and know themselves to be powerless. They can't do a thing. When I read this text again, and was working on this text, I remembered Rembrandt's The Storm on the Lake of Galilee. It's in a Boston collection. Get online and look at it. The tackle and the rigging is all torn. The sail is tattered. The sky is dark. The waves master the boat. The disciples are terror-struck, and they gather around the serene Jesus. And then I heard in the background Debussy's La Mer, 
Find a good orchestration of that. Play it for your children. Let them hear musically the wind and the waves. And talk with them about this text at home. And so there they are. They can't do anything. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Say, is that you? Do you understand that God brings people into his kingdom and also deepens us and our faith in him by putting us in places in which we see our helplessness and our hopelessness and strips us of our pride and of our arrogance and of our self-evaluations as great and masterful people? And then we have Jesus' response. Now, you might think Jesus would wake up and say, oh, well, I'm sorry, I've been sleeping so soundly, I didn't know this was happening. Hey, look, just calm down. It's all going to be okay. That's not what Jesus does. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you cowardly, would be a good translation of the word, Not little in quantity, that's not the point. They have impoverished faith. Little faith meaning impoverished faith. J.C. Ryle rightly says, How many have grace enough to turn to Jesus in every trouble, crying, Lord, save us, and yet not grace enough to be still and believe in the darkest hour that all is well. Too often that's me. And I'll bet it's you. I have grace enough to call out, Jesus, save me, but not grace enough to understand existentially from the heart that all is well and all is in control. And I want to be there, don't you? He's a prayer-answering God. They come to him in prayer. Lord, save us, and he does. And they need to see something. They need to see who Jesus is. Jesus is in sovereign control. And the second part of verse 26, Then Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. All Jesus must do is command. The elements have no choice. They cannot do otherwise. Be still. And they're still. One of the old German theologians wanted to explain this miracle in natural ways, naturalistic ways. And he said, well, by an astonishing coincidence, the storm happened to calm just when Jesus spoke. To which A.T. Robertson replied, some minds are easily satisfied by their own stupidities. (laughs) This is a miracle, a miracle, my friends, And this leads the disciples to marvel and ask in amazement. Verse 27, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And I want to point out three things to you as we see Jesus who calms the storm. Three things here. I first want you to see that any Jew would know that there is only one who can still the winds and waves, and that's the Lord who created the wind and the waves. In Psalm 65 we read, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. 
Psalm 76, 16, when the waves saw you, O God, then the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Psalm 89, 9, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Now turn to the Psalms, turn to the 107th Psalm and look at one of these for yourself. Psalm 107. Beginning in verse 23. Psalm 107, 23. And following. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Oh, my friend, it's Jesus who fulfills the words of this psalm to a T. God rules and acts in history. He's a personal Lord, a personal Savior. He's not an abstract philosophy. He is the Lord who is in control of all things in your life and in mine and all things in this world and this universe and any Jew knowing these psalms would know. The only one who could do this. Could it be? Could it be? They must begin to think as they move on through Matthew's gospel and come to Resurrection Sunday. They must be thinking, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And when he rises from the dead, it is absolutely confirmed. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. This is God himself become man to save us. Second thing I want to show you about who Jesus is in this passage is that this is the Lord who controls the cosmos, sovereign over all things, and that miracles, including this miracles, miracle, miracles show what this world will be. That in Jesus, the future has broken into time and space. And here we see some indicator of the new heavens and the new earth that are showcased in the stilling of the storm. That no matter what the difficulties and struggles of being a part of the kingdom of God in this life right now, persecution or deprivation or whatever it must be, all for the cause of Christ, that the promise for the people of God all is calm and bright and hushed and peaceful. All is well because Jesus is in control. And the third thing I want you to see as we think of who Jesus is, is that every miracle of Jesus, every miracle of Jesus is an overcoming of death. Every one of them. Since every miracle addresses the results of the fall of Adam, every miracle of Jesus answers to death with life. Every miracle tells us that Jesus Christ is the living Lord that he is life himself. And since every miracle is a foreshadowing of the restored cosmos at the end of time, 
And since the new creation is inaugurated in Jesus' resurrection, every miracle of Jesus is an exercise of the resurrection power of Jesus before the resurrection. And since the Christian life, since the Christian life, read Paul, since the Christian life is subsumed under the category of resurrection and resurrection power, what does it mean for us? That this is our Lord who has already begun working in our life through sovereign regeneration? That yes, the resurrection of the Christian dead is yet ahead, but down deep in your heart, in the very core of your being, you will never be more raised than you are right now. That already in Christ, in union with Him, you are seated with Him in heavenly places. That already... All of your life is subsumed under the power that you see as Jesus calms the storm. And that being the case, that we need to learn in the midst of the difficulties of life and all of the blowing of the winds and crashing of the waves, that yes, I can trust him. Who is this? What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Who is this? This is the creator and sustainer of the world, the one who restores this fallen world, who in resurrection power will clean up the whole fallen mess. This is the second person of the Trinity, God himself who became man, who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless and perfect life, who obeyed the law of God that you broke, who went to a cross and shed his blood to redeem sinners like us from our sins, who bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners, who rose from the dead inaugurating a new creation. That's who this is in this simple text. And so... Do you see the connection to discipleship? No, no. Do you see the connection to your discipleship? Do you see the connection to your life, to your heart's needs, to Jesus' call to you, follow me? Wherever I go, wherever I send you, whatever I want you to do. Do you see the connection? The connection is pretty simple. You need to see who Jesus is. And seeing who Jesus is needs to become your deepest conviction. And a conviction that grips your affections, that controls your choices, and then determines your actions. Do you see him? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you love him? Fairest Lord Jesus ruler of all nature, son of God and son of man, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.